0: one of the biggest challenges I see from the young companies is that people have a great idea, but they don't really have a great idea what the market is for the idea and, and they haven't spent enough time figuring out, is there a market for this product and, and what's the competitive landscape? I mean, for example, a lot of companies come in with ideas for launch uh, solutions and it's a very competitive market, as you know, and prices have been driven down tremendously. And to me, it's a really a saturated market it's really going to be hard for a small company now to break into the launch market at this moment you know i think that's what happens they they don't really see what's happening in the marketplace and see that that opportunity is really saturated at this point
1: time for another episode of the cold star project i am jason canning the host and the founder of cold star technologies we are on a mission to make space boring and in order to do that i am bringing you loads and loads of people from the space field who know a lot more than I do. Today, we've got Michael Lyon, who I picked out because he's got this really neat background. He's a, he's an attorney, uh, been general counsel for all kinds of uh, organizations, including James Cameron's Deep Sea Ventures. It, it's uh, going down in, into the uh, depths of the ocean there, um, checking out the Bismarck and Titanic and that kind of thing. So we'll have a big bit of a chat about that and also uh, he was an adjunct professor at George Mason University is involved with uh, an incubator that's got a lot of activity that's going on and so you're into a lot of things Michael thanks for being here
0: um, pleasure to be here thanks thanks you for
1: inviting me so you have done some some of the first space tourists things here you, you helped put together the first space tourist flights on Soyuz these flights were led by space adventures And as far as I understand, they're still the only space tourism flights. So tell us a little bit about that. Why is that important? And and what's in the way of further space tourism?
0: Well, yeah, I I was uh, general counsel and vice president of Space Ventures when we put together the flights of Dennis Tito and then Mark Shuttleworth, the first person from Africa to, to go to space. And it was a really exciting time time. A lot of people said it couldn't get done. Uh, We had mixed support at NASA. Some people at NASA supported it and some of the senior people didn't. So we had a a battle that way. Um, But the Russians were very supportive of us at that time. They needed the revenue, frankly, because they needed to to get at Soyuz up there every six months. So we helped fund the cost of their obligation to the ISS. Um, Worked on television shows, uh, different different things. And I, I think that those flights were one of the catalyst forces in the new space sector, really. If you think about when that all launched, it's really around that time. Even Elon Musk came to our offices during that time when he had this crazy idea about building a rocket company. So um, it was a catalyst. And you know we still are actually, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, the only space tourism that's taken place is through space ventures on, on the there's A lot of exciting things. People are talking about Virgin and Blue Origin and, and uh, SpaceX and different people, and I'm sure that's going to happen. Um, you know, I wonder how broad that market is, uh, you know, at, at the price points people are talking about. It's certainly there are certainly hundreds or even thousands of people that will do it. But to get to be a really mass market, I think the prices are going to have to go down, you know, significantly below what people are talking about now. So I think that price is one of the big significant uh, imp- impediments right now. And I think that perception of risk is also mm-hmm. an impediment um, until that gets worked through the system.
1: Right. Well, there is a 6% launch vehicle failure rate that's uh, kind of been hanging around for a long time. So, yeah. Um, So after Space Adventures, you worked for Deep Ocean Expeditions, um, which was founded, as you say, in the notes here by the chairman of Space Adventures. So you're acting as general counsel for this company, and it's going sending submarines down to hydrothermal vents and, and these ships and that. Tell us a little bit about that experience, and you personally went down to a hydrothermal vent 8,600 feet below the surface. And I imagine, I mean, it takes hours to get in and it takes hours to get out. And so tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so it was, the company was founded by Mike McDowell, who's really a, a, a fantastic explorer. And, um, and what happened is the Russians built these two mere submersibles that can go down to 20,000 feet. And they came online just as the Soviet Union fell apart and they didn't have funding Hmm. so we created kind of a symbiotic relationship with them where we helped fund their expeditions by bringing tourists along and by doing different media events Um, so we went down to Titanic we went down like if you've seen the movie the movie Titanic by James Cameron those are the mere submersibles that are in that film and the ship that they're on is the Keldish which is a sports ship that I spent three weeks on myself and we went down to the Bismarck with uh, National Geographic with some of the survivors of Bismarck and we did the hydrothermal vents, which I actually got to go on in that three week expedition where we went out to nine north, off the, about 500 miles off the coast of Mexico. And uh, we, I went on one of the dives, it was 12 hours. You, you sink down to the bottom of the ocean and we turned on the lights and there was this huge white octopus in front of us. So uh-huh. it was a, it was really exciting. Um, and uh, you know, I think going down to the deep oceans in some ways is the opposite of space. I mean, getting up to space and coming down from space are really hard and dangerous uh activities in space is relatively benign uh the ocean deep ocean is kind of the difference i mean it's easy to sink and hopefully easy to come back up you know um but down in the deep ocean where we were was 250 atmospheres so it's Mm -hmm. at one pinprick on the side of the the titanium hull and you know it's pretty problematic so um but it it was one of the great things i did i did did that in, in 2003 It was part of this film that, as you mentioned, James Cameron did called Aliens of the Deep, um, was looking at these extreme files, you know, kind of life that we might find in um, Saturn, Titan, or someplace like that, life without photosynthesis based on chemosynthesis. So, um, you know, still that extreme life is, I think, one of the most exciting things on the planet, and as close as you can get in some ways to going to another planet on Earth. Right. So,
1: yeah, that octopus was living down there under all those atmospheres. So that's that's wild.
0: There's a lot of life and they were almost all white because color didn't really matter in the deep. Once you were down about 300 feet, it was pretty dark. But mm-hmm. um, except for the tube worms, those red tube worms, they were really, you know, pretty, pretty vivid.
1: Okay. Another thing you've done—you've—you've you've worked uh, with a lot of businesses here. You're a co-founder of something called Extranaut Ent- Enterprises, and uh, tell us about that because you've got a connection there to NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, uh, yeah. which is a, which is a neat thing. I had another guest talk about that as well. Uh, who's James Cantrell? Jim Cantrell. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So about five years ago, I met Dante Loretta, who's the principal investigator of OSIRIS-REx. And it's a billion-dollar NASA mission um, going to an asteroid. It's an asteroid right now. Next summer, we'll go down and collect a sample from that asteroid manu and bring the sample back to Earth in 2023. It's a billion-dollar mission, as I mentioned, but NASA cut all the education funding out of it, unfortunately. And both Dante and I think that one of the most important reasons we go to space is to inspire the next generation. I'm, I'm a believer that Silicon Valley is really a direct spin-off of the Apollo missions because of all the generations of people that were inspired, people like you and me, really, from those missions that decided to do things in space. And uh, so we thought, well, we we need to do something about it. So we created basically a new space company in the space education and entertainment area, called Extranaut. We have three award-winning games out now. That we work with the Boys and Girls Clubs. We work with NASA to use these uh, and teachers use them. To, families use them and they're they're board games uh, but they're all based on real science one's called constellation the game of night of night night gazing uh, stargazing and it's where you collect the uh, different stars that comprise a constellation you play the board with the different constellations we have another game called extra the game of solar system exploration which is about collecting enough delta v from different rocket systems and gravity assist and boosters and complete 30 real missions Um, and we wouldn't Good housekeeping board game. With that, we won Mensa Select, which is basically a top uh, board game award for Constellation. And we have a new game called Don Link, which is you're really running a whole space mission. Hmm. And, and uh, now we're also working to take uh, the, the expertise that we have, uh, running major space missions, and in new space, to to launch uh, low-cost science missions in the solar system. It's taking what they're doing, people are doing in orbit, like you talk about uh, cube Sats and such. And taking those kind of economics and doing solar system missions that are between 10 and 30 million dollars instead of a billion dollars, so it's it's pretty exciting area, in, in in science, especially at missions between Venus and the asteroid belt. Um, so that's what we're doing, um, and we're doing this now globally as well with with Extranet. Okay. And the idea, by the way, the name Extranet we got because of all the people who are part of space exploration. You know, who's the astronaut? In most exploration today, we really don't have one except on the ISS, let's say. But all these people, but, but these, these robotic missions that we send all over the solar system really are, of course, exploration. And the people who, who design them, operate them, analyze the data are extenders, are, are explorers on the extended basis. And that's, there was really no term to, in the lexicon for those people. So we, we coined the name Extra. Hmm. Anyway. Where can people buy these games? Um, Amazon. Really is really really is, we we do we do uh, kickstarters every year mm-hmm. for those for, for new games we're having a new game coming out in March, um mm-hmm. and another one in April actually so we have a lot coming down the, and then we have a new fish game coming out fish stock <laughs> called Pisces, so we have probably three games coming out this year all launched on kickstarters and then we we sell them on Amazon and then we sell them directly to school systems around the world. Okay, Michael, are you
1: involved in the development of the mechanics of these games, or is that handled by somebody else?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, uh, Dante has always been a great gamer, so he mm-hmm. he he develops the games. I'm more the business person, so yeah. um, I I, man- I manage the whole business process. But I, I guess the main part I do is, is is the instructions. Okay. You know, it's hard when you're when you're deeply involved in something to to write it up in a way that you you assume it's it's natural. You assume that this makes sense, kind of the way you said it, and and you and you might leave a few steps off. So that's probably my biggest role is to somebody who wasn't developing the game directly to to draft the instructions in a way that that everybody can really you know understand what, how the game works.
1: Okay. very valuable um, <laughs> because yeah, the, as, you, as you say, the guy who came up with the mechanics knows all the ins and outs, and isn't this obvious? Yeah. Well, no. Now we've got to distill this down and explain it to somebody exactly. else in a way that they exactly. Can. So that's a yeah. that's a valuable tool. Uh, so. Hmm seen a, a pattern here in your behavior, Michael, where you, <laughs> you <laughs> see um, somebody's developed a capability, and it's underutilized, and then you come in and you plug them into a money-making venture with it. So that's, that's really cool. Uh, so you're a, you're a mentor of a tech accelerator. It has a fun name, a Creative Destruction Lab. Tell us about that and what your experience with it is, has been. I'm interested in a success story or a failure story. Take some time here and, and let us know what that's been like.
0: Well, so we, Creative Destruction Lab is, was launched out of the uh, Rotman School of, of Management and University of Toronto. It's, it's generally Canadian based. Um, there's six locations, including actually Oxford this year and about 350 uh, starting startup companies and developing companies go through the program every year. And uh there's different, what we call streams, which are subject matters. So there's everything from AI, which is actually very strong, blockchain, quantum, things related to quantum, cities, energy. And then one of them is space. And that's where I'm directly involved in. And that's um, based in Toronto. We have about five astronauts, part of it, that former head of the Canadian Space Agency. Chris Hatfield, very well-known Canadian astronaut, basically launched the program. We have Anusha Ansari from the XPRIZE. She's part of it. So it's really a great program. Um, We meet every eight weeks with companies. It's kind of like a business school class where Hmm. you you meet with companies, you talk about their their strategy, their finance model, their marketing model, their HR model, um, everything beyond just the idea. I mean, a lot of these companies come in with just a great idea, but they don't really have all these other elements that you need to make a successful business. So we work on that with them, and then you, you we work you you pick three or four companies that you're going to work with over the eight weeks between the next session and the one that just finished, and and you meet you talk to them and help them with the progress. And and so it's 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 been a great experience.
1: Okay, so we touched on this, but I want to dig into this a little more. So you've got these space and AI startup founders coming in with uh, you know I want to change the world right this great idea you know we see this so many times and that what what do you wish that they would know or have in place before they started looking around for seed funding?
0: I think that um, well first of all I would say that AI and space really go together well I mean a lot of what's happening in space is collecting a tremendous tremendous amount of data from the earth Um, and one of the I think the best things that AI can do is sort through data to find the most relevant data so that high-end human analysis can take place. So I think that they, they really do go hand in hand, AI and space. But, um, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges I see from the young companies is that people have a great idea, but they don't really have a great idea what the market is for the idea and and they haven't spent enough time figuring out, is there a market for this product? And, And what's the competitive landscape i mean for example a lot of companies come in with ideas for launch uh solutions and it's a very competitive market as you know and prices have been driven down tremendously and and i'd say to me it's a really a saturated market you know i mean it's it's really going to be hard for a small company now to break into the launch market at this moment so i think you know i think that's what happens They, they don't really see what's happening in the marketplace and see that that opportunity is really is really saturated at this point um so and I think that um, another problem that they have often is they spend a lot of time on the technology and not a lot of time on the marketing business strategy mm-hmm. you know, it, a lot of them come out of the tech background, so they don't they don't spend enough time thinking about how do we get to customers how do we do, how do we really secure revenue and if you don't have if you have a good idea but you don't have the revenue, it's pretty hard to get investors because investors like to see that this is something that's attractive to the marketplace. So, um, I think that, you know, spending, I I try and push encourage companies to spend more time early on to validate that there's a market either, even if it's just MOUs with various companies showing Mm -hmm. that they have an interest. You know, if, if you can do this, we are interested conceptually, you know, that's useful. Hey, this is Jason
1: Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory Compliance and, gosh, the end customer. Who would have thought about that, right? So you can sign up for this. If you go to coldstartech.com MSB, that's short sure for Make Space Boring, the mission we're on, then you can sign up and in your email, you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted. I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com slash MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. OK. Uh, have you signed NDAs with these folks where you're not able to share specific examples, or would you be willing to do that?
0: Well. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll share one, which is... Uh, I mean, you can not name it. Well, it, it's okay, that's I'll, I'll, a good idea. So, you know, the, the, one of the companies I worked with was, was a German company that was, was doing a, a lunar lander. And they spent a lot of time on developing their, a lot of money. They actually raised a significant amount of money, putting a lot of money into developing the, the, the specs for the lander, but not figuring out where the market was for example they didn't have a big presence in the united states as you know a lot of the funding for space for better or worse comes from the united states from from nasa the clips program for lunar missions for example is a major source and it's pretty hard it hasn't been proven that there's really private money to support this initial lunar economy yet i haven't been convinced mm-hmm. about that i mean there are private solutions that can support government missions there um, which is what nasa is doing and i think that makes a lot of sense but 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 things that make sense on a private sector basis standalone that where that both the provider and the customer are private sector entities, it's, you know, it hasn't been proven yet. Hopefully that will happen. Um, So I think, you know, I think that, that, that company ended up going bankrupt this summer Hmm. Um, and uh, it's back in the market now in a new kind of format. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, I think they've learned some things from that, but you know, you, you, it's hard to raise money, easy to burn through it. And I think you have to use it very strategically and it didn't do, you know, the problem I told you about where, I mentioned earlier about where they didn't really spend enough time figuring out where they were going to get the revenue from and, and, mm-hmm. and putting, putting money, chasing that building capability to secure that is, is, was a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Now on the flip side of that, I do think that you believe it's an exciting time for startup companies in the commercial space sector. So how does that work?
0: I, I do. I do. I think they're there, you know, I think as you've seen launch costs, driven down mm-hmm. you have been able to have uh, lower cost vehicles being able to be launched that have a relative you know have some risk and as you pointed out and you know the, the, the there is risk you know there is more failure you know Cyrus i think the biggest difference between the missions today and let's say a nasa mission Cyrus rex is just the margin of error you're willing to accept mm-hmm. you know if you have a 180 million dollar launch for a vehicle to go to to uh, uh, an asteroid you just don't want to think the fail you know so and you, you, so you have a lot of redundancy a lot of testing and all that is very expensive when you have a lower cost paradigm I mean you're, you're able to take bigger risks and I think that's pretty exciting what we're, we're able to do I mean most of the money right now I think is, is really earth-based observation so that's hmm. it's, it's collecting data from earth um, in a cheaper way whether it's tracking one of the companies I worked with tracking methane leaks for example um, Making fertilizers applications more efficient. This was another company in CDL. You know, um, there are these different markets that we we there was there were terrestrial-based applications, but they just weren't as effective because we didn't have as much data, and uh, and they weren't as ubiquitous on the planet. So you know that th- that I think really creates some really exciting opportunities. So
1: is that where you're seeing investment going? Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I got think more to biggest... say than than
0: I. I believe at the beginning on this well, I think the biggest investment really is earth based observation that's that 's where I think um, there are there's a handful of, of profitable or hopefully profitable launch companies now then there 's companies making the spacecraft, and there 's a handful of those then there 's companies that make those spacecraft operate more efficiently there 's some you know propulsion systems that are pretty innovative coming out there 's some control systems that allow people to control the spacecraft better. Then there's the data that comes out of the spacecraft and there's some companies that are making that access to data more efficient, like Skywatch. That's another company in CDL. Um, You know, that's a great company. Um, And then there's a bunch of companies that are really using that, all those platforms to, to, to gather data that can be used by different commercial sectors on earth. And I think that's where you see the the strongest economics right now are those companies um, that are doing that. And, and whether it's um, a company tracking shipping, a company like I said methane gas uh crops um, you know where where buildings are taking place um, obviously there's civilian and there's military applications of of that of, of these applications so i I feel like that's where the insurance sector you know is another as another mm-hmm. revenue source for for this, this kind of business so that's i I'm seeing that's where the most the most customer money's going and I think in some ways the the most exciting uh, startups are
1: okay let me ask you to put your attorney hat on for the moment and, and ask you, do you see startups consistently missing something important about legally protecting themselves or are they generally doing a good job
0: of this? No, they miss it all the time. I, I work with a lot of startups, mm-hmm. uh, which is an area I like working in because I have a business and legal background. So it, it, it helps, but you know, it's, it's hard because you know, money's money's tight. So they, they, they do things themselves. They draft, Collaborative agreements themselves, <laughs> which sometimes they go and they regret later. You know, you, 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 they haven't really thought through the risks of what they're doing, even NDAs. You know, um, but especially collaborative agreements. And then, you know, fundraising—they might have not had that sophisticated counsel for, for early fundraising, and they end up giving more rights away, not just valuations, but rights away than they needed to. Um, and and uh, IP protection, of course, is another area mm. um, which can be extremely complicated and expensive. So you really have to um, get the best bang for your buck, because you can spend huge amounts of money on IP protection. Mm-hmm. And where do you get the most value? And what do you really? Where is? Where, what should you really do in that strategy? Um, and then just corporate governance. You know, how do you? How do you? How do you organize your boards? What kind of meetings do you have? Um, are you in compliance? And then export is another area. You know that I work mm-hmm. in. That, that you know that, which is a very complicated area. in, in from the United States perspective, mm-hmm. uh, export compliance um and uh you know you don't want to make a mistake of it there's been some companies that made mistakes and paid paid the price for it and it can also it's not just that gets you in trouble it can actually interfere with your business model going down down the road because certain clients like certain government clients aren't going to work with you if you've had that Mm -hmm. problem so yeah there's a lot of need and usually low low budgets and it's usually one of the last things people think about right
1: Okay, Michael Lyon, Uh, this will lead into the next question then, which is when should people in that space field be ready to work with you? When should they be thinking about, oh, I should
0: go talk to Michael? Right away. I mean, I think really early in the process, actually. The earlier, the better, Um, because it's always easier to stay out of trouble than than get out of trouble once you're in it. So, I mean, as soon as you have even a little bit of funding, and, and I work with companies with just you know, 10 hours a month kind of thing or less, but just give them, uh, I think the best value of advice at where they are. I think it's, it's really important. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I have some companies that don't have any, you I try and help with, you know, just as they're going forward. Um, but I think it's one of the first things you need to, to look at because you're, you're building your whole value chain going forward and, and uh, you need to protect that. Um, so, you know, you don't want to give away things you don't have to give away.
1: Right. And for those who are novices to things like Seed Round or venture capital funding, you can get into situations where you're overly enthusiastic as as founders, including me, uh, always are and get into a situation where you signed on to achieve certain revenue targets over a period of time. And if you don't achieve them, there's ratcheting equity clauses that you lose equity in your own company to the fighters and you can lose your company that way. And this is not Absolutely. uncommon. This is not nope. uncommon. Uh, uh, and right. Protecting intellectual property, as you say, um, you know, keeping that out of the hands of, of, uh, folks who maybe are your friends today, but might not necessarily be your friends tomorrow. So, and, and I think too, one thing that I've seen is uh, everybody's all buddy-buddy when they start a business. And so say you've got two or three founders, uh, how do you separate those? those that's,
0: that's right. You know, when, when, I mean, when you're starting a company with people, it's like getting married. Mm-hmm. And when you get married to somebody, it's not very romantic to think about the divorce at the same moment. You know, some people do a prenuptial. Yeah. But I, I always think that, you know, when you're doing an investor agreement or, or your partnership agreement with your partner initially, it should be like a marriage and a prenuptial package together in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really need to think through not only how you're going to work together and who's going to do what and avoid free rider problems, which I think is often a really big issue mm-hmm. where somebody's just doing a lot more work than the other and, the, and you don't, and you start to think it's not really fair the deal's not really fair. But then how do you unravel the situation? I do these, I do business divorces, one of the things I do in legal practice. And, you know, I think it's the more you can think about that ahead of time. So you think about how you unravel this, if it doesn't go well, the better. So it's mm-hmm. worth taking time to think about that up front. So when you ask your question about when you get a lawyer involved, mm-hmm. that's why I say very early, because I mean, it's it, even when you guys are just thinking about forming a company together, it's pretty important to think about Who's doing what? What are the responsibilities? How are you going to share revenue? How are you going to share expenses? Um, what are you going to do if it doesn't work out? You know, all those things need, should be thought of upfront if you can.
1: Right. And yes, and, and it's not negative. It's not I've been through this. I, I you know, co-founded a business with a, with a friend and we're still friends because we had a good agreement at the start. Of how are we going to separate this thing? But man, joint bank accounts and signing authority, and you're logged into all these apps together and that kind of thing, right? I mean, you you have to extract yourself from that when you're when you're ready to leave, and
0: it's just not that easy. So, Michael, how can and, people? And can you're and you're right. You're right. I'll, I'll make one more point about yeah. that, which is that one of the most valuable things about doing the agreement is kind of what you just said, which mm-hmm. is that it makes you think through the issues, and then it makes sure that by writing it down and codify it that you're on the same page because to me one of my favorite words in business is problem because I think that means opportunity but my worst my least favorite word is assumption huh. and that just permeates business assumption and it, and it often is in the relationship when you go in that you're assuming the other person's on the same page with you about everything and almost a hundred percent you're going to find places that that assumption was wrong and that's not a bad thing at all that's a good thing because then you 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 work it through and you you you, you eliminate the assumption and you get down on on firm's position for going forward. I think it's a really healthy process. So right. anyway, I didn't mean never cut you off.
1: No, it's great. It's great for legal operating agreements. It's great for project management. It's great for sales. <laughs> Coming up with those assumptions and finding smoking them out, yeah. and uh, and then straightening them out uh, causes a lot of friction to just go away. So Michael, how can people get a hold of you? Where should they go
0: to find out more? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn at Michael Lyon and Lyon Capital Group is my my parent company. I have, um, you can reach me at mlyon, M-L-Y-O-N at lyonlegalgroup.com. Always happy to uh, hear from you and and, uh, brainstorm about ideas and talk about what's going on with you.
1: All right, Michael, thanks for being here today.
0: Thanks, thanks for the interview.